Welcome everybody to the Health and Wellness Show on the Stott Radio Network. Today is April 8th, Friday, uh, April 8th, 2016. And uh, my name Not is Jonathan. Going. I'll be your host for today. Hold on, Jonathan. Let's just ask the audience if they can hear us. Oh, yeah, sure. Can you guys hear us? <laughs> audience? Chatters? Are you there? Anybody in the chat room? Yes. Oh, yes, we can be here. Yes. Great. Okay. And cool. resume. And then go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so joining me in our uh, virtual SOT Radio Network studio here uh, from all over the planet, we have a big lineup today. Um, Tiffany, Erica, Gabby, Doug, uh, Elliot, and our friend Gordon. Um, so welcome, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hello, hey, everybody. Hello guys. Hi. So we have a, a giant cast uh, today we should have a good show. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the truth about tobacco and the benefits of nicotine. Um, <clears throat> so we're the topics we want to cover. I mean, that's essentially the main topic. Um, just wondering, you know, is tobacco the life-threatening plant that we've all been taught to believe it is? Uh, are there differences between uh, just uh, straight tobacco and processed cigarettes? You know, versus like cigars, pipe tobacco, that kind of thing. What are the benefits of nicotine and could there actually be benefits to smoking tobacco as opposed to just taking in nicotine, you know, via patch or gum or other things like that? Um, You know, are there benefits to vaporizing or is that itself a a dangerous trend? Um, So we'll kind of go into all the the topics that we can within our allotted time around smoking. But we have um, with us uh, our, our friend Gordon, who has written an article uh, that is up on SOT called the Epidemic of Junk Science in Tobacco Smoking Research. So we want to start by talking about um, that article. And I guess, uh, Gordon, if you wouldn't mind, um, just to kind of get us launched here, um, just tell us what uh, what drove you to uh, to write this article, what, what, what gave you the impulse to put forward the effort to actually pull all this info together. Well... In, this, in Australia and New Zealand, on the cigarette packets, we have these um, wonderful graphics and incredible claims about what uh, tobacco does to you. And um, I started looking at these claims and thinking, some of the, this is just getting more and more ridiculous. For example, um, one of the claims is that uh, smoking causes erectile dysfunction. Um, smoking makes you impotent. And I would just think back to my generation, I'm a baby boomer, and if you think back to the late 40s and early 50s, and you look at the population in in the Western world, probably 70% of the men and probably 40% of the women smoked. So if all of the terrible things that they say on cigarette packets and that they tell us um, about tobacco, if they were all true, how could there possibly have been a baby boom generation? Hmm. I mean, if it if it causes erectile dysfunction, if it makes you impotent, there couldn't have been a baby boom. <laughs> and, and, and if you go back and look at the way things were, even when I was a child, I mean, the people smoked everywhere. They smoked on the bus. They smoked in the picture theatre. They smoked in the doctor's waiting room. They smoked in the hospital. People smoked everywhere. If you went to visit somebody, it was expected that they would have an ashtray and cigarettes offered to you because that was just part of the courtesy of visiting. 
And yet the baby boom generation is probably the largest explosion of population that we've had for a very long time. So the very fact that that happened was an indication to me that there was a disconnect between the actual facts and what we were being told. So I started to dig into the research. And the more I dug, the more blown away I was at how much rubbish there is out there. Now, the interesting thing about tobacco research, and they admit it themselves, is that all of the research, pretty much all of the research that's been done to prove tobacco is harmful has been epidemiological. Now, what does that mean? That basically means that it's observational studies and statistics. And if ever the truth of the statement lies, damn lies and statistics is proven, it is in epidemiology. Mm. Now, now, epidemiology has been very useful for diseases which are single-cause diseases, so things like typhoid and, and, and cholera and those sorts of things, things which are demonstrably caused by one thing only. But you see, all of the diseases that are in, in designated smoking-related diseases are not exclusive to smokers. They're all contracted by other people. So if you think about that, let's say we have 100 people who have lung cancer and 50 of those are smokers and 50 of them aren't. How can you possibly prove that the 50 who are smokers wouldn't have got lung cancer if they didn't smoke? Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't prove it. It's not, it's not possible to prove that. And it's so all of those diseases are multiple risk factor diseases. And the way epidemiology works is that they will take, they will do a, an observational survey, or they'll get people to fill out a questionnaire, and they will ask questions which are designed to elicit answers with regard to smoking. But they disregard environmental factors, they disregard pollution, they disregard the possibility of um, contamination from work environments, um, genetics, all those sorts of things. So at best, epidemiology can show you a correlation based on the questions that were asked, but it cannot prove a causation. And in fact, epidemiology is all about studying populations. So it's studying large groups of people. But just because you can find a correlation in a large group of people does not prove that in any individual example, smoking caused that disease. And, of course, they don't ever talk about these sorts of things. So that's sort of where it kicked off from. That's what got me started. Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting yeah. in that regard, uh, too, that they seem to uh, go to great lengths to try and explain what they're finding and the, the, the rise of the whole <laughs> idea of secondhand smoke. You know, well, you know, the, the, the non-smokers didn't get it, but they were exposed to smoke from other people. So then that, that becomes the way that they kind of can, can pin, pin it on smoking still, even though the evidence doesn't really show that. Well, well, it's more insidious than that. I think they realized at a point in time that they were going to lose out because of the whole issue of free choice. Look, at the end of the day, if you have been told that smoking is terribly dangerous and then you choose to do it, well, then... You know, that's your choice. And they realized that they couldn't achieve their goal, which was to have a smoke-free world, if they stayed with that. So 
they widened the scope so that they could then say, ah, but your smoking is hurting other people. And then, most importantly, your smoking is hurting children. And that yeah. then tugs on everyone's heartstrings. And everyone's going, oh, that's terrible. Right, we have to stop that. And that's, in my opinion, that's why they widened it to the whole secondhand smoke then, because suddenly they can say, well, it's fine if you want to hurt yourself, but you're hurting other people. Mm-hmm. And then again, the whole area of secondhand smoke is another fascinating study area. Because the, the World Health Organization, the, the, the nasty World Health Organization, they set out to do the study to end all studies on secondhand smoking. This was going to prove once for all how dangerous secondhand smoking was. And it was over a period of about 10 years and it had a, a, popu- a, a study group of about 1,000 people. And it was due out in 1998 and it didn't get released and people were wondering what was going on. And eventually some intrepid reporter from the Daily Telegraph in the UK managed to get hold of it through a freedom of information request. Hmm. And the reason they didn't release it was because it proved categorically that secondhand smoking is not dangerous. Hmm. And that was not something that they wanted to release. So hmm. it was released. The organizations like Ash and so forth jumped up and down and screamed and said the interpretation was all wrong. Um, and basically the World Health Organization ignore it. And if you go to their website, they will tell you that, you know, 600,000 people a year will die from secondhand smoke. And it's all lies. Hmm. But one hmm. of the things that you find is, is that this is, this is, to, to most of the people that are involved with tobacco control, this is a um, it's it's an evangelical thing. It's a religious thing. It's their goal is to get smoking out of society, and the attitude appears to be: if you have to fudge the truth, or if you have to play with the results, or if you have to tinker with things, then it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, you're achieving the greater good. And there's a, just a huge amount of dishonesty out there in this whole space. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting how um, many of these sort of anti-smoking types, um, it's not even a secret that that is their aim. Um, you know, in many of the studies, um, they explicitly say that their aim is to prove that tobacco causes these diseases. They don't approach <clears throat> it from a scientific standpoint. They don't even aim to be objective about their um, their research. It's It's basically to interpret the data in any way in order to further their agenda um, mm-hmm. and, you know, provide false evidence that, that smoking is the cause of many of these diseases. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's not yeah. science. Oh, of course it's not. Well, it, well in fact, I, I make the point in the article that, that, that epidemiology, the way it's practiced, particularly in the area of tobacco control, um, isn't science. The scientific method has basically four or five parts. I mean, you, you have a... You get an idea, you then you then go and test that to see if you can get you know some sort of um, correlations that that might uh, justify that. Um, you then do some clinical trials to prove it, um, and then what you end up with is 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 a hypothesis or a theory, um, and the results that you get are supposed to be repeatable. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the way it works. They go, they go. Let's let's do an observational study. All right, we've got some correlations there. Right, let's publish the data, and and away they go. And yeah. the second thing is that nobody, but nobody, ever goes back to try and reproduce the results. 
because that is unacceptable. It's politically incorrect to challenge the results in this space. They won't do it. So you can pretty much say anything you like, and it will get published. And when it's published, the newspapers will pick up the headline, and away they go. And the headlines um, for the, the, the research are often wildly different from what's actually in the document, and that was the other thing that blew me away. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, yeah. there's the whole area of correlation versus causation, and people sometimes find it a bit hard to understand that. So I'd like to use the example of studying basketball. So if you studied basketball, then you may come up with the observation that tall men play basketball. Now, you could interpret that to say that playing basketball makes you tall. <laughs> and and in the, in the tobacco control world, that's what they do. They get... They get the data, they make a faulty correlation like that, and they will then issue a press release which says, research shows that playing basketball makes you talk. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously not a valid, a valid assumption, you, and you would really have to go and do some clinical trials to test that out. Because <laughs> if, you're, if you're five foot three and you play basketball for 50 years, you won't end up being five foot ten or six foot four. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> but that's... Uh, that's that is typically what happens in that space. Hmm. This whole tobacco business is like a giant social experiment uh, to see what they can get away with, you know, what if people obey, what they can do or not do. And unfortunately, it has worked pretty well because despite the evidence and good science, you know, um, people are all scared about smoking. Yeah. Well, exactly. And the, the interesting thing is that if you go back and have a look, you find that it, from about the early 1990s, the pharmaceutical companies started to fund the anti-tobacco activities um, with a vengeance. In fact, there's, mm. there's at least two of the companies, um, Johnson & Johnson set up the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Wellcome Organization set up the Wellcome Foundation. And those two foundations are huge funders of the anti-tobacco movement. Now, if you look at the Robert Woods Johnson Foundation, they were endowed by one of the founders of Johnson & Johnson, um, and their money comes entirely from revenue on shares from Johnson & Johnson, and they've got about, I don't know, $2 billion worth of them. So every time somebody buys a Johnson & Johnson tobacco cessation product, such as gum or patches or one of the drugs they've concocted to help people stop, they make money. So there's a huge conflict of interest right there. But hmm. when it comes to this sort of research, that's that's not considered whatsoever. However, if the research was even partially funded by a tobacco company, well, that by itself is considered to be grounds to disregard the research because it's biased. Hmm. But yeah. the bias operates on both sides. Now, it even goes as far as the World Health Organization. In 1999, um, three of the... Um, large pharmaceutical companies um, formally signed on with the World Health Organization as sponsors of their anti-tobacco campaign. And the World Health Organization is just the most one-eyed and bigoted organization when it comes to smoking. And why is that? It's because they get so much money from the tobacco industry. So the next question then is why is the Sorry, in the pharmaceutical industry. So why is the pharmaceutical industry funding all this anti-tobacco activity? Well, 
The short answer is that they want to control the market in nicotine. And in fact, I had a friend who was um, whose husband is suffering from um, uh, dementia. So I went and did a bit of research on tobacco and dementia. And in that whole space, you end up looking at dementia, you end up looking at schizophrenia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It all sort of comes into the same bucket. And there's, if you go and draw around on the society websites, you find that there's a huge effort going into um, pharmaceutical companies developing tobacco-based drugs. Now, it can't be mm. just nicotine because they can't patent it, but it's extracts mm. from nicotine, which they can then turn into drugs, which they can then sell to uh, people at uh, very large profits. Now, if you think about it, the ability to denormalize tobacco and make people believe that even though nicotine has lots of health benefits, um, it, it, getting it from tobacco is far too dangerous, therefore you can't do it. They were making great progress down that path until we have the rise of vaping. Now, this is really interesting because there's a whole bunch of guys who used to be rabid anti-tobacco people who have now turned into pro-vaping advocates because they see this as a very good way for smokers to stop smoking. All, all focused on smokers having to stop smoking because they're, they're too weak-willed to do it on their own. And the funny thing about this, the thing I find quite ironic, is that those people who were anti-tobacco advocates, and still are in fact, um, but who are now pro-vape, pro-vaping advocates, they are being attacked by the tobacco lobby, oh, sorry, by the anti-tobacco lobby, um, and they are having junk science used against them, and they are just most upset about the fact that their former colleagues are attacking them in exactly the same way that they used to attack us. Mm. And I think, and I think the reason for that is that we can't have another cheap and convenient method for people to dose themselves with nicotine. It doesn't fall into the grand plan where drug companies can sell nicotine-based drugs at a huge profit. They can't do that if, A, people still smoke, and, B, people use vaping. So it's really all about the almighty dollar, at, at least on that level. Of course, this is a multi-level thing, and I think there's obviously hyperdimensional aspects as well. But just on the pure sort of 3D level, I think that's what it's all about. It's really all about making sure that the only place people can get nicotine from is a drug company. So what I think there's more is, to it than... Is vaping... Oh. What's the process? How is that different from smoking a regular cigarette? Well, it doesn't use tobacco. You see, it's it's basically a liquid with nicotine in it and other stuff, which is then heated, and and it it basically delivers a, a hit of nicotine and mm. and flavour. They're, they're all different flavours, apparently. Now, I'm I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that's a good thing or it's healthy. I'm just pointing out that. The, the reason that that's being attacked so viciously and why it's being included in all of the anti-tobacco legislation and they, they're banning vaping on planes and they're banning vaping in the outdoors and all this sort of stuff is because they can't have a cheap and easy-to-use method for people to get nicotine. I think there is more to it than the nicotine, you know, pharmaceutical nicotine products or vaping or uh, other... Uh, substitutes because now we have come to see a society that has normalized completely the idea that you should stop smoking or never smoke, but it is completely normal to take anxiolytics or mood-changing drugs, antidepressants. 
mm-hmm. people are literally like, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop smoking. And then they just get an antidepressant and they think that is just perfectly normal. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. And if you consider history before you know, Big Pharma became as big as it was, I mean, there's always been smoking bans before there were any kind of uh, pharmaceutical products that had nicotine in them. Yeah, I think it's this type of personality that manages to um, to worm its way into into some sort of position of power, and they have an innate drive to, um, I guess, control people in any way possible. And I guess if if they are um, an anti-smoker themselves, then they aim to enforce that on everyone in society. And I guess it's just another means of of taking away individual liberties and um, and gaining more control over the populace as a whole. And I think yeah. with the research, with the research, it's um, it's really difficult for scientists to actually publish anything that goes against the um, the official narrative that smoking causes cancer because one you've got most of most of the um, the research funding is actually from the pharmaceutical industry and so these Great. scientists know that if they publish something um, that doesn't that doesn't or that isn't in line with um, with the official narrative then they're aware that they're probably going to have their reputation demolished they're not going to get any more funding and their career is essentially going to be over. So if they do manage to publish something that is a little bit more objective or that that says otherwise, then what they have to do is they have to word it in such a way that doesn't explicitly say um, smoking is protective or nicotine does not cause cancer or whatever. They have to word it in a very, a very strange way and it's quite hard for the reader to actually decipher what what is actually going on in the study you know yeah well there's, there's actually there seems to have been a protocol developed for that the, the way they do it is they'll, they'll start off the study they're, re, they're presenting the research and they'll say we all know tobacco is terribly dangerous and it causes all these horrible diseases and it's really bad and no one should do it but we have noticed that it has a positive effect in here and here and here. But then again, of course, it's really bad stuff, so you really can't do it. And, and that's the <laughs> format that it takes. I've, I've got a number of papers that I've, I've looked at where that's the format where they report it. It's terrible stuff. Here's the interesting stuff, but it's really bad. And you shouldn't do it. It's, it's, <laughs> that's the only way they can do it. And, and, and even doing that, they do run the risk of, uh, of ad hominem attacks and losing their funding and perhaps being fired. It's just amazing. One thing I'm curious about, and I noticed, <clears throat> Gordon, in your article where you mentioned the uh, the questionnaires that are used and the the risk factors that are introduced uh, in these questionnaires, um, could you just talk about that for a minute? That how you know they might uh, narrow down the parameters of the survey itself by excluding certain questions. Well, if you look at say lung cancer, for example, which is a multi-risk factor disease. There's a whole bunch of ways you can con- contract lung cancer. You know, it it could be smoking, it could be genetics, it could be the effect of pollution, it could be um, something environmental, it could be um, where you work, if you work as a miner, for example. There's a whole bunch of ways that you could contract uh, that disease. But when they're looking to put together the questionnaire, it will be very specific and it will be just focused on... Uh, have you ever smoked? 
you know, how many cigarettes did you smoke, um, and, and and questions like that. And I, I actually put a couple of links into some questionnaires on the in in the article. It's very specific, and it just relates to this one risk factor that they're focused on proving. In in the same questionnaire, they may ask questions like, "Oh, so um, what about being exposed to secondhand smoke? Uh, did your parents used to smoke? Okay, how many cigarettes did they used to have?" So they're asking someone to remember how many times you know a day their parents smoked um, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, the possibility of getting correct answers for this stuff when most people can't remember what they had for breakfast yesterday is um, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty remote. And, and yeah. the second thing is that, is that there's also some biases that come into play. So, for example, let's say that um, you've got somebody who has got lung cancer. When they're answering the questions, it is human nature for them to blame the smoking because it's been pushed and pushed and pushed. So they know oh, I, 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 I smoked or I, I still smoke and I got lung cancer. And they will tend to overestimate what they did and how much secondhand smoke they're exposed to, etc., etc. So it, it's all very fluid. It's all very easily interpreted. And they never ask the questions about, you know, did you used to drive a diesel truck for any period of time? Did you, you know... Do you walk through the city every day to get your lunch and stand by the the road and cop the exhaust from you know fifty or a hundred cars? There's there's no questions ever that look at that sort of stuff. Mm. And yet, and yet I read I read a, a, some research from someone that was published in the early sixties um, where they drew a direct correlation, and again it was a correlation um, between the rise in diesel trucks for transport and mm. for moving you know stuff around and um, lung cancer. Mm. They also looked mm-hmm. at the fact that people that lived in rural areas um, contracted it much less than people that lived in urban areas. So again, you know, there's there's just so many factors that it's really impossible to tell. Yeah, and sure. Th- therefore, by the way, the way you ask questions, by the things you ask, by the things you don't ask, by the 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 sample you select, by the size of the sample, how you select it. Um, who you include, who you exclude. There's just so much room for that thing to be manipulated. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's like the questioner itself promotes confounding factors um, or actually uh, discourages confounding factors to be found, like yeah, pollution mm. and all. And they're repeatedly exactly. found to be unreliable diet. So why will not it apply for smoking, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I was um, just reading an article this morning where it's talking about um, a researcher at one of the um, the pharmaceutical companies was complaining that um, a huge proportion of the research coming out of the universities is unreliable. In fact, um, they were making or producing cancer um, cancer type drugs or drugs to counteract cancer. And they had a look at uh, 53 studies, uh, which were in landmark publications, top journals, reputable labs, <laughs> and they w- wanted to reproduce some of these results. And they found 47 out of those 53 could not be replicated, which mm. is just unbelievable. Because, hmm. you know, for this to be genuine science, it needs to be easily um, repeatable and repeatable by anybody. So they, they actually interviewed one of these guys and said, look, we've done your test multiple times and we can't get the results. And he said to them, in with some degree of candor, 
Um, well, look, you know, we did it half a dozen times and we got those results on one occasion and so we thought we'd go with that and publish those. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like yeah, at the was... very least you want like a like a fifty one percent majority at, at the very least. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, well, well, considering that it's meant to be repeatable, if you do it six times, you should get the result six times, right? And that's that's not what they're getting. It's absolutely not. And yeah. of course, the other interesting thing too is um, is that when it comes down to doing uh, clinical trials, um, there's a whole um, mess around lab rats. Now, breeding lab rats is, is a big industry and they, and they sell millions, if not tens of millions of them just in the US alone um, for about five bucks a pop. But these things, of course, have been bred over generations um, and they've done some comparisons there because not because of data in the tobacco control field, but because of data in, in other areas like the, in the cancer research field. They're finding that they can... <coughs> Get, st- get results with laboratory rats, which when they go to a clinical trial and use people, um, the results don't don't appear. And they've started to study the rats, and they compare the lab rats with you know wild rats, and they find a huge difference between them. Um, lab rats mm-hmm. tend to be stressed; they tend to be overfed because it's the cheapest way to feed a, a lab rat is to just have a, a tray of food there, which they can feed out, feed all the time. So you know they just eat all the time, so they're obese. Um, they have a suppressed immune system and, and so on and so forth. So what you're actually dealing with is animals that are that are far from healthy to start with. And also many of these rats or many of the um, particular families of rats that they use are prone, are genetically prone to cancer. Now, that's nice if you're actually doing cancer research, but when you're trying to prove, for example, that tobacco smoke causes cancer, then that's not fair. However, that's having said fair. that, having said that, Having said that, nobody has yet managed to make a laboratory rat um, contract lung cancer from tobacco smoke. No matter how they've tried, and the interesting part about it, and it goes back to what uh, someone was saying before about um, setting out to prove a particular result, is that you'll read the paper and they'll say, well, we did these tests with the rat and we didn't manage to get this, but the reason for that probably is because of this, that or the other. So they justify the fact that they couldn't get the rat to get cancer rather than look at it and go, well, hell, it didn't actually cause cancer. Hmm. <laughs> they're, they're, working, they're working on the yeah. basis that it does cause cancer, therefore there must be another reason why it didn't work. And that's, again, it's just everything's just biased to proving what they want to prove. Well, have you found, found that? No. Sorry? Sorry. I was just going to say, have they ever found in any animal study that they can induce lung cancer through tobacco smoke? Um, they, they claim to have had some success with hamsters, but but again, you, you have to look at what they do. There's three typical ways that they try and induce cancer in lab rats. The first one is that they'll get um, tobacco smoke and they'll condense the the um, the ingredients of that smoke and they'll get a concentrate. Um, and then they'll smear it on the skin of an animal, huh. and they'll keep on they'll keep on doing that over a period of time to see if that causes any sort of tumour. That's that's the first thing they do. And again, you'd have to say, well, first of all, it's not smoke; it's <laughs> condensed smoke. And secondly, it's probably equivalent to you know, it's probably forty times the strength it would have been if it was just smoke. And didn't so you write in your that article proves- that there is no like standard of the nicotine? Uh, 
formulas that each lab uses to do their experiments? Oh, no. No, it's all different. Yeah. It's all different. And these, and these so that's, that's the extracts. Sorry, no, go ahead. Just whatever they, no, no, it, the, the, there are very few standards when it comes to this stuff. But that's, that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do is they'll then they'll confine a rat or a number of rats into a, a, a small box, basically, and pump the box full of tobacco smoke or cigarette smoke. <laughs> so it, it's the, the the immersion thing, and they'll leave the thing immersed in there for eight hours a day, seven days a week for its entire life to see if, <laughs> you know, if, that, if that causes cancer. And the third thing they do is they have them, um, there's a little picture in the article where they have them in these little sort of uh, tubes where they basically are being forced to breathe smoke. And um, they, they, I think... The thing was that they, it was cigarette from 10 cigarettes, sorry, the smoke from 10 cigarettes was sort of fed to these things, whether they're in the box or getting it through the nose. And mm. when you consider that, you know, 10 cigarettes for your eye probably <laughs> equates to, you know, 1,400 cigarettes for a little mouse, <laughs> yes. no, nothing, nothing that they're doing is actually valid. You know, they're just desperately trying to find some way to prove it. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of the uh, it reminds me of the studies that were done on uh, marijuana during the uh, Reagan administration. And if you look at the study itself, they actually pumped the equivalent of something like fifty joints worth of marijuana smoke into a uh, chimpanzee's lungs um, in one sitting. You know, and of course, <laughs> of course the creature can can withstand that amount of smoke no matter where it comes from. Well, exactly. I mean, it, 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 all, all it proves basically is if you, I mean, from a from a tobacco smoke perspective, is that you know yeah. perhaps you shouldn't smoke fourteen hundred cigarettes at once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is so true. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps you shouldn't. Yeah, but despite then, that, just despite one thousand one thousand four hundred's worth of um of cigarettes in a day for a rat they still haven't managed to conclusively prove causation that it causes lung cancer. Still. Exactly. And, and that's using rats that are genetically inclined to get cancer. Hmm. And yet they keep right. doing you know, so it, the it, studies it, over and over again. It just reminds me of some weird kid who gets off on torturing animals, doing little experiments mm. in his basement, no matter what the outcome is. He just likes to, you know, torture rats, basically. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some of that, I think, too. See, the, the other thing that, um, that that people don't think about is um, if you look at the number of above-ground detonations of atomic weapons that took place from 1943 to 1969, there were more than 700 of them. Mm-hmm. And now, the, the, we're talking about above-ground detonations. So... Mm-hmm. I read a study which estimated that there were, and again, this is it's an estimation, but they're saying you know 700 billion radioactive particles in the atmosphere. Hmm. Now, the thing about a radioactive particle is, if you get a particle in your lung, you will get lung cancer. If you get a particle on your skin, you will get skin cancer. It's it's lethal stuff, and it has a half life of 50,000 years. Hmm. So you got this stuff floating around in the atmosphere, falling to the ground with rain or you know, precipitation or various things, getting into the soil, um, and so on and so forth. So, to me, it's not a huge wonder that 
for that period after the war that they started to see a huge rise and increase in um, in lung cancer. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they all point to that and say, look, that, that's just proof that, that, you know, smoking causes lung cancer. But to me, you, you, how do you, how do you um, take account of the fact that there is so much radioactive particles floating around up there? And then, of course, mm-hmm. you have things like Fukushima happening in Japan, and then there's all that radioactivity in the water. And it's just one of those things they never talk about, and it's one of the things they don't want to talk about because... You know, somebody might be liable. Yeah. Well, and the, of course, elements of the diet, you know, that we've talked about on this show in the past, I think one of the, the main ones, in, in my opinion, is um, hydrogenated oils, which are very uh-huh. molecular, molecularly close to plastic. And, and those are the majority of, of what's being used in the standard Western diet. Anytime you get something that's, that's fried or cooked in oil, it's cooked in a hydrogenated oil. So many, many people are ingesting this stuff, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know if personally if there are any studies around that. I'd also be curious to see uh, a study done around you know proximity to uh, traffic and to a highway, uh, you know, and then the amount of traffic on that highway and how much the person is exposed to exhaust. Because I remember from the book uh, "Detoxify or Die," was it Sherry Rogers who's the author mm-hmm. of that book? who said that uh, walking through a supermarket parking lot, uh, you, one time you inhale as much cadmium, cadmium as, you, as you would get from an entire pack of uh, like Marlboro cigarettes. Yeah, well, I, I, I saw some data which suggested that um, just um, a, a minute's worth of diesel exhaust equated, I think, gave you the amount of benzene you'd get from 350,000 cigarettes. Jeez, wow. And, and, and when you when you think about those sorts of numbers, yeah, then you know how can people stand there with such um, with, with such certainty and tell people that you know tobacco is this terrible thing and it's causing all these problems? It's just unbelievable. Well, for what it's worth, um, on the subject of um, environmental pollution, so ex- exhaust fumes. Uh, smokers have actually um, been found to be seven times less likely to develop lung cancer when they're ex- when they're exposed to exhaust fumes. Um, mm-hmm. So perhaps smoking actually protects against that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from well, what I, I've I read, it gives a, a mucus layer coating the surface of your lungs so mm-hmm. that uh, carcinogenic uh, <laughs> particles can't penetrate your lungs. So. That's a protective effect. Yeah, they end up in the, they end up in the mucus. Yeah, yeah get expelled. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fascinating. There's some, yeah, there's some very interesting uh, material, not studies necessarily, just anecdotal material too, from the time of the uh, the Black Plague. That I believe the majority, if not all, of the doctors who treated the plague uh, smoked a pipe. Um, and there's there's one interesting letter that I had read once from that was written by a girl whose father was a plague doctor, and she said that he was never without a, a pipe in his mouth, and treated hundreds and hundreds of people who were infected with the black plague, um, and and never contracted it. You know, and so that that would that would lend anecdotal credence to the idea that it forms this protective layer. But of course, it's not a uh, you know a study itself. Well, I mean, there's some, there's some very concrete sort of science behind how it does actually protect the body. Um, I'm not sure whether we're going to want to stray into that just yet or maybe later on. But, um, but I mean, it, 
the the amount of evidence that's come out in the last 15 to 20 years really demolishes the idea that smoking is in any way bad for the health and it actually um you know conclusively proves that smoking um smoking can protect against many things and i mean the, the effect that it has on the immune system for one would make perfect sense as to why um smokers have been sort of known to um to dodge the plague in 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 those in those times you know mm. indeed indeed but but of course you know um the world's full of authoritarian followers and uh, they've all absorbed the um, the anti-smoking method message. It's amazing. You, you go and make a, a pro-smoking comment on many of the forums or underneath any of the articles and, that are on the internet, and you will just get savaged by people. They are mm. they are so so hate-filled. I mean, I was I was on a a, um, a forum which was catering for people who were looking for eternal life. Basically, it was. You know, all the things we can do to live longer and longer. And, and there was a debate going on there about smoking. Some guy had got on there and was providing a very logical, very reasoned argument as to why so much of this science was nonsense and just laying out the facts. And people were just attacking him. You know, it was, uh, you're a filthy smoker, you know, you're going to die. I hope you go home and, you know, cough your lungs up and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping you'll, you'll die of lung cancer next week. And it was just unbelievable mm. stuff. And, mm. and, you know, when it, when it got to the stage where they couldn't answer his arguments, it just went to attacking him. It was just shocking, really. Well, and the amount of, yeah. you, you know, you, you can imagine those people, you know, under some circumstance being out in the street and then attacking somebody who was smoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that does happen here and there, but, you know, internet comments themselves are like the seventh level of hell for that kind of discourse. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. That's, that is true. Yeah. We have a question yeah. from the chat. It's from the Nomad. Is there a correlation between the increase of lung cancer and above-ground nuclear testing that started in the 40s? When I had just happened to have a, a little da data that supports that correlation, and it comes from Professor Chris Bresby, who was scientific secretary of the European Committee on Radiation Risk, at least back in 2009 in Stockholm, he said, the global death yield on the nuclear age to 1992 has been horrifying. According to objective calculations by the European Committee on Radiation Risk, using weapons fallout radiation exposure, there's, there has been up to 2003, 61 million cancer deaths. 1,600,000 infant deaths, 1,880,000 fetal deaths. There has been a loss of life quality of 10% in terms of illnesses and aging effects. And he says that the blame of this can be squarely placed on the door of those scientists and administrators like WHO, ICRP, these organizations who developed and supported the scientific risk models. And he claims that this is a war crime far greater in magnitude than any that has occurred in recorded human history. So mm. how is that for correlation? Nobody <laughs> that answer. Yeah, but but of, but of course, of course, the the popular opinion would be that there was nothing to do with radiation; that it was all to do with you know cigarette smoking. See, yeah, one, right. one of the interesting things I've noticed though is that is that um, is that 
cancer tends to be, and it's, this is a generalization, but it tends to be a disease of older age. And one of the things you notice when they're counting, you know, what, what the effects tobacco has is someone will have quit and they might be quit for 20 years. And when they get lung cancer, they will say, ah, that was because they smoked. It's like, well, hold on, that was 20 years ago. How do you know that was? Well, it must have been because he smoked. And it's it's just yeah. this self, it's a, it's a sort of circular argument and it's very hard to get people out of it. And that's that's the sort of justification that they use for producing the, the ridiculous you know, numbers for mortality and morbidity and this sort of stuff. But then on that's, the other that's hand, another interesting exercise. they'll try to convince you to stop smoking because you'll reduce your risk of getting lung cancer and having a stroke or a heart attack. But yet 30 years later when you actually have stopped, and you end up with it. They say, oh, it's because you smoke. Well, what happened to you telling me to mm. stop smoking? I thought that was supposed to make me yeah, not exactly. get cancer. <laughs> exactly. exactly. No it's, logic, it's, Tiff. No logic. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Not only that, but yeah, we can show... Oh, I was just going to say we, we can show that the, the rates of uh, smoking due to the anti-smoking campaigns have gone down over the last uh, 20, 25 years. And the rates of lung cancer have steadily risen during that time. So what gives? Yeah, I mean, true. the two statistics are directly contradictory to each other. Yeah. yeah. Maybe There's we another, should go. Yeah. Yeah. There's another interesting fallout from that whole process, and that is that doctors are as equally indoctrinated as anybody else. And if you go to the doctor and you're a smoker and you have some sort of an issue with your lung, it will almost guaranteedly be just be diagnosed as lung cancer if yeah. you don't and you go to the doctor with a problem with your lung the chances are it won't be diagnosed as lung cancer because you don't smoke and there was yeah. a study in fact um, if you read the book um, um was it called um smoke screen he talks in there about a study that was done by some pathologists where they um they looked at a a, a group of people some of whom smoked and some of whom didn't who had lung cancer or who had been diagnosed with lung cancer and they found that um, the smokers had been overdiagnosed by about 45% and the, and the non-smokers had been underdiagnosed by a similar rate. And mm. apparently you, you can't actually tell whether it's lung cancer unless you cut them open or until they die and you can have a look. But it's amazing how many times misdiagnosis occurs because of the bias about smoking. And in fact, I read an article the other day where they were talking about the necessity to have to develop some sort of a screening test for non-smokers because there's been a particularly large rise in lung cancer in women who don't smoke. And they're just saying, well, hell, it's a bit of a problem because we never test non-smokers. And it just shows you how wide the bias is. It's a, lot, it's a lot of bias. I have an anecdotal um, experience. I did a workshop on spirometry. You know, it's the breathing test to see your lung mm -hmm. capacity. And we were all doctors, and I was the only smoker. <laughs> and I volunteered <laughs> to breathe through the tube just to prove, you know, to make a point that, it's gonna be, that it was going to be normal. And in the end, several of us did the test, and I had the best lung capacity of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> did the other people there know that you yeah. smoked? Yes, so I was joking, like, this proves that you all have to start smoking. <laughs> mm -hmm. ah, well, well yeah, the, the interesting thing is that I had a, um, I had a, 
a cancer incident back in 2009. And as a consequence of that, for the next five years, I had um, regular scans. They started off being three months, and then went to six months, and then went to 12 months. And um, on each occasion, they would be scanning my lungs, among other things, because I just wanted to check to make sure that the cancer wasn't spreading to other parts of the body. And every time... I had those um, scans done. My lungs came up clear. And the fact the doctor told me, who didn't know I smoked, um, he told me that I had the lungs of a 30-year-old. And this is when I was yeah. 58. Hmm. And I told the, my, the guy I worked with at work, um, who I'd known really well, and I told him, you know, I have better lungs than you have. And he was absolutely furious because he said, that's not how it works. You smoke, <laughs> you should have bad lungs. Mm-hmm. It, it was just incomprehensible to him that I didn't have bad lungs. Mm. Well, one of our chatters, Star, brought ah. up the whole placebo effect or the nocebo effect. Like there are smokers who are self-hating smokers and smokers who don't care, and they're kind of proud of it. So maybe the ones who are <coughs> self-hating smokers and they're so indoctrinated with the smoking causes lung cancer myth, maybe they are thinking themselves into lung cancer. Yes, I think that it's some truth to it. <laughs> mm, I do too. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting so though because. Oh, go ahead, Gordon. Um, I was I was just going to say that um, if you look at the the propaganda that comes out from the people like Ash and all these other organisations, they are constantly telling us that you know eighty percent of smokers want to quit. And I, th- I think there's two things at play here. One is that when you're being surveyed, if you're a smoker. Um, the chances are that you want to appear normal, and normal these days appears to be that you would want to stop, um, and therefore they can draw correlations from this and say all these people want to stop and they can't stop. Therefore, it shows you how addictive smoking is. And in fact, we've seen in recent times these statements that you know smoking tobacco is worse than heroin as an addiction, which is just mm-hmm. complete nonsense. But people yeah. are making these sort of statements and they're justifying it on the basis of, well, look at all these people who can't quit, who say they want to quit, but they can't. And in my opinion, it's not that they can't; it's that they actually don't want to, because if you look at What's happened in the last 40 years, there have been tens, if not hundreds of millions of people across the Western world who have just stopped because they've decided I'm stopping. And they stop. Mm-hmm. And they haven't used patches. They haven't used tobacco. They haven't used drugs. They just stopped because they said, right, that's it. I'm done. Mm. And I think yeah. the, the reality of life is the people who smoke now smoke because they want to, because they enjoy it, because they get a benefit from it. And that's very hard for these anti-tobacco people to accept. Because as far as they're concerned, they've presented all this logical evidence about how bad it is. So if you still smoke, you must be either weak-willed or addicted. Yeah, this this yeah, that, comes. Sorry, go ahead, John. Oh, oh, that I was just going to say that um, to that point, it, you know, in talking about the placebo effect and the psychological makeup around it, that you know, quote unquote, self-hating smokers, and I'm sure we all know at least one. Um, <laughs> You know, maybe we don't. I don't know, but I, I do. I, I know one or two, um, and the the uh, the self denigration is so all encompassing. It's like not only you know in their minds, not only are they filthy and they stink and nobody wants to be around them, but they have no willpower. They're they're weak willed. They're um, they're not a full human being. Uh, you mm. know, it's it's so all encompassing that it it it, uh, it encircles their entire. Um, viewpoint of themselves um, mm-hmm. 
And so then, you know, in that situation, every time you have a cigarette, uh, you're reinforcing all of those negative uh, opinions of yourself. And, you know, talk about a powerful uh, placebo. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, uh, like a, a reinforcing hypnotic effect over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that um, that smoking tobacco or, or or this craving for nicotine is is actually a biological addiction um, just stems from a, a, a real basic sort of lack of understanding of the science behind nicotine and behind tobacco. Um, in that, the the brain, the nervous system, and the body as a whole systemically functions at a much higher level um, when someone consumes tobacco smoke. And so you think about it like this, okay? You start smoking tobacco and your body understands that it's working more efficiently, okay? So you try stop smoking tobacco and your body understands that it is no longer working as efficiently as it could, and therefore, your body um, naturally is inclined to smoke something or to smoke tobacco in order to if, for it to function better. Um, it's it's really quite basic logic, but mm. if someone doesn't understand the cognitive enhancement of tobacco, then it's easy to 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 um, to come to the to the idea that this is a, an addiction. When in fact it's not an addiction, it's 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 like eating good food. You know, you eat good food because your body knows that it is good for you. You know, um, and that's a similar yeah. thing with tobacco. But but it's also a part of the 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 denormalisation of tobacco. When they managed to change the definition of smoking from a habit to an addiction, then suddenly it sounds worse. And suddenly it's something that can be treated with drugs and it's something that needs to be dealt with. When it's a habit, it's a choice. When it's an addiction, it's not. So it, sure. it really suited the anti-tobacco people to have it redefined as an addiction. So they changed the definition of addiction in order to make this fit. Yeah. yeah. I remember in uh, Richard White's book, he talks about that whole uh, comparison between uh, nicotine and, uh, and uh, heroin. And he's like, if you put a heroin addict on a 12-hour flight across the ocean, you're going to see the effects of withdrawal. You know, if you put a, a, a smoker on that same 12-hour flight in there, they're not able to smoke during that time. You know, there might be a little bit of discomfort, but there, there's, you know, it, it's not even comparable. So to, to say no. that it's a, as addictive as a heroin is just absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. And, 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 and how many smokers do you see holding up um, – drug stores in order to get money to buy their cigarettes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Well, mind you, mind you, with the price they are over here, it might happen soon. Yeah. <laughs> and how many I mean, heroin addicts do you see living past the ripe old age of 100? You certainly see a lot of smokers <laughs> who live past 100. <laughs> That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. a very good point. Um. Yeah, I, I, something that's coming to mind while we're having this this discussion too is the idea. So we're talking about you know there are benefits to smoking tobacco, um, but I just wanted to kind of uh, do a little devil's advocate and make it clear that some you know not everybody should smoke. You know, I mean, it's not like this is something that everybody should be doing. Like some people appear. I, no, I don't know if there are any studies around this. I doubt that there are, 
um, but that some people are genetically predisposed to um, reaping the benefits of tobacco and of nicotine, while other people are not. Um, like uh, my girlfriend, for instance, and a number of other people that I know um, are not attracted to tobacco. Um, they've tried it. Uh, they didn't like it and they never think about it, you know? And so in those cases, it's like, well, you know, there's just not a, um, there's not a compatibility there. Um, whereas for me, um, I've been a dedicated smoker for, for some time and have narrowed down my usage of tobacco to a very specific, you know, whole leaf organic tobacco with hemp papers and that kind of thing. And so it, for me, it's, it's something that I do that I really enjoy. And I, um, I put a lot of energy into kind of refining. Um, but I just wanted to bring up that idea that, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's for some people and not for other people. And I'm really curious as to what the mechanism is there, but I, I don't really have any idea. Um, there, just, just there, there, there are, there are, um, or there is a growing body of evidence that actually does suggest that smoking is genetic or there is a genetic compatibility, um, towards <clears throat> tobacco smoke. Um, for instance, um smokers compared with non-smokers um the smokers have similar um sort of patterns of proteins in their blood whereas compared with non-smokers non-smokers have similar compa- uh proteins etc in their blood whereas when you compare the two um there is a definite difference between the smoker of uh, the blood of a smoker and then the blood of a non-smoker and um, there's also been genes that have been found to be more active in smokers while other genes were less ac- active whereas compared to the non-smokers they had certain genes that were not active in the smokers so um there is there is a real big difference it sort of genetically between smokers and non-smokers and um some researchers are actually theorizing that the genes that are responsible for neurotransmitter production and metabolism um that may determine whether someone is compatible with tobacco smoke or not and so this would explain like um there's there's typically sort of um among research in in the field of sort of crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis um Mm. there's there's this seeming like paradox it's it's basically that people um who smoke have a drastically reduced risk of developing ulcerative colitis like Mm. there i mean this one study showed that they're approximately three times um no non-smokers are approximately three times more likely to develop it Whereas when you compare it with non-smokers, non-smokers have also been sh- no. Uh, when you compare it with smokers, smokers have also been shown to um, to be forty-two percent reduced risk of getting ulcerative colitis. So basically, ulcer- ulcerative colitis is um, it's a bowel disease which affects the large intestine. Um, so yeah, you, you've got you've got this reduced risk in in smokers, but then on the other hand. Um, when you look at Crohn's disease, which is very similar to ulcerative colitis, um, people who smoke are actually a lot more likely to, de- to develop Crohn's disease. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, this is, this is a paradox in, in the research field because they don't understand why smoking protects so much against um, a disease of the large intestine, whereas for the small intestine and the large intestine, which is Crohn's disease, um, these people have a much increased risk 
And I think um, it, it's sort of been theorized that there is this genetic factor to that as well. And it's, it's more likely that someone who is um, not genetically compatible with tobacco, if they consume tobacco, then perhaps they also have some sort of genetic, say if they're predisposed to um, Crohn's disease or something like that, then perhaps, uh, you know, it's quite complex, but something to do with the genetics is definitely there. Yes. Then, and it also makes then, me... Yes. Go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, there's a strong correlation also with thyroid problems. That is, people who are genetically compatible with tobacco, you know, seem to benefit uh, from smoking. Uh, the thyroid gland seems to benefit from you know, from people who are smoking to the point that people who stop smoking can develop an autoimmune thyroid problem um, up to, what was it, 40, 50 percent in the following, yes, in the following months after, after quitting. It's the, those who Mm. quit smoking had a six-fold increased risk of autoimmune thyroid problems. So these are people who clearly benefit from smoking. Because when they stop, the thyroid problems begin. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. Well, in fact, there's, there's a, a trend that people that stop smoking actually get sick and can be quite sick up to three or four years after they stop. But there's, there's a website that's dedicated to it. You know, why didn't you tell us? <laughs> that, is that the name of the website? Oh, no, it's not. But that's oh. the theme <laughs> of the website. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that also makes um, me think of yeah, epigenetics. Like maybe there are some people <laughs> at a genetic level who are more disposed to benefiting from smoking. But once you start smoking, uh, the nicotine or the components in the tobacco actually may turn on some genes or turn off other genes. So it's, mm. you know, it's kind of hard to say what came first in a lot of cases. Well, yeah, that well, makes it very difficult to kind of, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to tease apart because mm-hmm. when you look at the genetic differences between smokers and non-smokers and say that some people are predisposed, I mean, you're studying people who have who are being exposed to uh, tobacco smoke, which may cause epigenetic changes. Um, you know, the problem is that there is probably a lot of non-smokers out there who might be genetically predisposed to smoke, but because of the propaganda, they don't. So uh, it, it makes it very difficult to kind of tease that apart. Well, I've, mm-hmm. I've got a couple of friends who, who gave up smoking and said that uh, one of them in particular said to me that uh, when he either hits 70 or gets a serious illness, he's going to start again. Because mm. he's only stopped it because he wants to live long. But as soon as he gets a bit older or he looks like he's going to die, he's going to be right back into it. <laughs> Well, maybe we could go to more uh, into some detail about the benefits of tobacco because Elliot wrote a thought focus. It's going to be published very soon. It is not yet published, but he gathered quite some fascinating details and studies. And I would like to ask Elliot specifically to talk something um, about that. You know, what should be what what should we be aware of in terms of Scientific, good quality scientific research papers out there on nicotine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, of the relatively few that are actually out there, 
there has been um, quite a lot of fascinating evidence published um, on the protective effects of, uh, but not only nicotine, but actually other um, components of tobacco smoke as well. Um, yeah, um, I guess to start off, um, tobacco smoke is actually, I mean, despite common claims that it causes lung cancer, it's actually been shown to um, to quite significantly protect against lung cancer. Um, I mean, there was one recent study. Um, I'm not sure how well it was controlled for. But, um, yeah, there was one recent study that showed that um, non-smokers were actually 50% more likely to develop lung cancer um, when compared with non-smokers. Um, another one was that... Um, this was done, it's interesting because we were talking about the effects of radiation earlier, and um, it's actually been showed a number of times um, that smoking somehow has um, a protective effect, uh, effect against um, the lungs absorbing radiation. So, for instance, there was this one study on dogs where what they did was they, um, they pumped this uranium ore dust into the air, and it was inhaled by these dogs. And um, yeah, yeah. But what what they actually found were that the dogs who were smokers, or the dogs that were um, subject to tobacco smoke, were actually um, significantly they 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 displayed significantly lower rates of cancer when compared with the other ones. And the researcher actually concluded that exposure to cigarette smoke was found to have a mitigating effect on radon uh, radon daughter induced tumors. So basically, all of the other all of the other dogs developed lung cancer. Um, the ones who smoked didn't. Another one of those types of studies. Um, it was one done on irradiated rats. Um, so there were these rats who smoked and they compared them with rats that didn't smoke. And, um, and what, what they found was that the ones who did smoke, uh, displayed significantly less inflammation in the lungs. Um, they also concluded, um, sorry, I've lost my place. Yeah. So what they concluded was that, um, that smoking, uh, definitely has a suppressive effect on um, on radiation induced cancer, um, mm -hmm. and the, the, this isn't just applicable in animal studies as well. I mean, there's been a few on on humans as well. Um, one showed that um, one showed was that one, was it one with breast cancer? Is it possible? I remember. Well, yeah, there's there's one um, there's one here that showed that basically people with breast cancer, um, when they went for radiotherapy treatment, um, they displayed the smokers displayed significantly decreased inflammatory reactions when compared to mm -hmm. the non-smokers. Um, there's another one with the risk of developing lung cancer from asbestos exposure, which was mm -hmm. um, three times higher in non-smokers than it was in smokers. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there is tons of research that actually suggests somehow that smoking has this protective effect against things like um, environmental pollution. You've got exhaust fumes, um, you've got asbestos. There's lots on asbestos. Um, yeah, I mean, there there is there is a wealth of research out there. It's just difficult to find. Um, yeah. But when I was writing this article. Um, 
yeah, I wanted to get to the bottom of why this actually happened, you know, mm-hmm. because you can see, uh, you know, um, the odd bit of research or the odd ar- article on SOT um, that, that that provides these this 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 sort of um, data, but there's this nagging question in my mind is how does it actually do it you know how does smoking Mm. protect against this so i did a bit of research and there is actually a concrete um science or there's a concrete group of sort of mechanisms that tobacco initiates in the body that um that has this you know uh, an obvious protective effect against against things like disease against um, environmental pollution and significantly increases immunity and longevity and everything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we could start off with nicotine. Like nicotine, I mean, in, inside of your body, you have certain receptors that are called nicotinic receptors. And these are basically a type of acetylcholine receptor. Now, when you smoke nicotine, what happens is, is the nicotine enters your bloodstream and it binds to these receptors and it activates co- something called the cholinergic pathway. Now, this is mm-hmm. basically an anti-inflammatory pathway. I think, Gabby, you wrote about it in one of your articles about tobacco. Mm-hmm. But what this does is it essentially releases acetylcholine. Now, acetylcholine is responsible for learning and memory, and it's known as uh, it basically stops inflammation in the body. Yes. Now, when you factor this into disease, it would make a lot of a lot of sense as to why um, as to why nicotine does seem to prevent against it, these diseases. And certain researchers have actually classified nicotine now as um as an anti-inflammatory molecule there is it, it cannot be classified as anything else it is clearly anti-inflammatory and because of this um there's actually been a ton of research done on nicotine in its isolated form um it's been shown to play a key role in suppressing cytokine production uh, it's significant it significantly down regulates and delays inflammatory and autoimmune responses in the central nervous system it attenuates neuroinflammation um it, it's been shown in mice uh, the mice that are injected with lethal doses of influenza a virus actually displayed um longer survival rates when compared to control groups and these are the ones that have had nicotine so nicotine clearly like um has this effect and this is probably because it activates the parasympathetic nervous system and allows the body to sort of repair itself um you know you know in order to to, to basically fight off disease um mm-hmm. but i mean this this isn't the only thing uh, with nicotine it's actually been studied by neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists um i know some neuroscientists have de- dedicated their whole career towards um understanding the beneficial cognitive effects of nicotine um because this is something that is sort of well established within the field of psychology and neuroscience and i mean It's been shown that people who receive nicotine on tests are, you know, they basically trump non-smokers in every single test, whether it be (laughs) memory, speed, precision, focus, attention, long-term memory, semantic memory, arithmetic, complex calculations, and gross motor skills. You know, this has been shown consistently among the studies that nicotine significantly improves cognitive function. 
Um, but funny no, enough... Th- sorry, yeah. go ahead, Gabby. No, that, there's a theory of why it's so, you know, prohibited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly, it's not actually just nicotine. Um, it's actually been shown that <laughs> when compared so so you've got a group of a group of people who have smoke free nicotine products okay now this has been shown to improve mental efficiency um you know but the problem is is that when these people are compared to smokers <laughs> the um the tests on vigilance rapid information processing um they are quantitatively smaller when compared to smokers so it's not just nicotine. It's like people who can, they can have nicotine and it increases their cognitive function. But when they smoke, it increases their co- cognitive function way more. So mm. it's, it's, it, this isn't just nicotine we're dealing with. Like there's a lot of people in the alternative health community who talk about the benefits of nicotine, but they miss out on a big chunk of it because it's not nicotine. Nicotine is only uh, one component of thousands in tobacco smoke. And so tobacco holds many other different components. When they work synergistically with one another, that's when you see the real benefit of tobacco in its form that it was given to us in nature. You know, um, there was this there was this one particular researcher. Um, I think he studies in the field of cognitive psychology. And his name is Richard Warburton. Now, in one of his papers, he basically um, stated, he, he said four, four points. The first one was that nicotine clearly improves attention in a wide variety of tasks in healthy volunteers. The second one was nicotine improves immediate and long-term memory in healthy volunteers. The third one was nicotine improves attention in patients with probable Alzheimer's disease. And the last one was, while some of the memory effects of nicotine may be due to enhanced attention, others seem to be the result of improved consolidation as shown by post-trial dosing. So, um, as I said, you know, it's well established within within the field of neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Nicotine is clearly, clearly very beneficial for the brain. And it's funny too. You uh, mentioned the alternative health community. Um, I came across an article not too long ago with uh, by Dave Asprey, um, the bulletproof coffee guy, bulletproof exec, and he was talking about nicotine as a no a nootropic um, and using it kind of when you need kind of a cognitive boost or something like that. But of course, he goes into how smoking is bad and smoking is terrible. So he, he's talking all about the other um, you know methods of taking in nicotine he says like you know he lists off a, a bunch here and says uh, kind of ranks them in order of of worst to uh to best and he says the smoking is the worst chewing tobacco is next then e-cigs or vaping then nicotine gum then nicotine patches then a nicotine inhaler then nicotine lozenges and finally the best being nicotine mouth spray so he's he's going into all this detail about how great nicotine is and like you know cites all the different benefits and all the research and stuff, but then turns around and says don't smoke. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. This, this is similar to Jack Cruz as well. He advocates using nicotine patches and nicotine gum and stuff, but the problem is these guys operate from the faulty assumption that 
smoking causes cancer and that's one exactly but secondly they're focusing purely on nicotine and this is one of the biggest problems because they miss out on many of the other factors in tobacco smoke like for instance mm. you've got um you've got something called mono monoamine oxidase inhi- inhibition so mm. there's certain enzymes in your body they're called monoamine oxidases and what they do is they degrade certain neurotransmitters so they degrade noradrenaline they degrade serotonin and they degrade dopamine. Okay, now this is really important. Okay, what tobacco smoke does, and this is isolated from nicotine. This is this is not nicotine that does this. Okay, this is another proper property of tobacco, but tobacco actually contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So what these what this chemical does is it inhibits it, it um, inhibits the action of um, monoamine oxidases in the body and it prevents them from um, from degrading neurotransmitters mm. now it's basically an antidepressant that's right? exactly what it is that's exactly what it is I mean these these things were like the first ever developed antidepressants by um, by the pharmaceutical industry they used to use monoamine oxidase inhibitors and, and that was before SSRIs came about so this is Tobacco is, you know, it is, um, it is basically a, a natural antidepressant and it's found naturally occurring. Um, and there is something else that's really interesting about this is that there was a study um, done on monoamine oxidase inhibitor antidepressant drugs. There was a particular one called Deprinil. And what it actually showed in, um, in I think it was a variety of mammalian species was that when these um when these mammals were given monoamine oxidase inhibitors um it actually markedly increased their lifespan and this was across the board so what this suggests is that there's something about monoamine oxidase inhibition that somehow increases longevity now it, when we factor this in a little bit later it will make a lot of sense um Secondly, you know, apart from the, the, the benefits of nicotine, um, smoking is actually, well, this is quite amazing. If anyone understands the importance of glutathione in the body, like glutathione is basically, it's known as the mother of all antioxidants. So, <laughs> I mean, it basically plays one of the main roles in pretty much everything, you know, immune function, fighting off diseases, you know, rest and repair, I mean, for your body to function efficiently, you need sig- significant amounts of uh, of glutathione. And it's interestingly of, enough, sorry, go ahead. Just to clarify to people the importance of glutathione, it is, it is part of every detox protocol, and it is the stuff that people try to increase in their bodies when they meditate and do yoga and do breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Test, test. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. You know. Um, everyone in especially in the alternative health community everyone raves about glutathione it's like the main one that everyone's trying to raise you know like liposomal Mm -hmm. glutathione and blah 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 and blah 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 blah. whereas what's really interesting is that smokers have actually been found to have 80 percent more glutathione in their lungs Mm -hmm. when compared to non-smokers now, wow. if you consider if you consider that eighty percent more is is like that's an amazing amount when compared. 
And this has actually been shown in many different studies, you know. Um, there is actually a mechanism behind this. Uh, it's called the glutathione adaptive response. So what it basically does is when you, when you smoke cigarettes, uh, it depletes your glutathione levels for about two hours, but then it increases them by like sixfold, and that's for up to two months. So two months, like, yeah, for two <laughs> months. You know, there was there was one study that showed that um, after two hours, it increased to three times its basal level, and then within sixteen hours, it went up uh, by six times, and with with repeat exposure. Uh, threefold elevation um, was maintained for two months. Okay, I nearly, wow. I nearly fell yeah. off my chair when I read this. You know, your <laughs> that focus looked like wow. Yeah. Tell people that I have eighty percent more glutathione than them just because of smoke. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And That's it's not unbelievable. Even it's not even just in the lungs. This is systemically. This is in every part of the body. And so, like, <laughs> you have these people raving about glutathione, whereas you're thinking, why don't you just pick up a cigarette? <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> like, this is nature's way of increasing your, your, your detoxification systems. Yeah, um, man, I get people in the, the health food store all the time looking to increase their, their glutathione levels. And, like, you know, I make different suggestions for supplements, but I wonder how they'd, uh, how they'd react if I said, <laughs> start smoking. You'd be <laughs> fired in an instant. And it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? It's not even just glutathione that this this applies to as well. Um, you've got another really, really important antioxidant in your body, which is called catalase. And then secondly, you've also got one called superoxide dismutase. Now, across many different studies, it's been shown that um, basically superoxide dismutase enzyme in the, in, in the blood and saliva are significantly higher in smokers than they are in non-smokers. And um, it was also found in one study that there was double the amount of catalase and superoxide dismutase in, um, in hamsters that, that smoked when compared to ones that didn't smoke. Hamsters so basically, you've got this like <laughs> drastic, absolutely amazing increase in glutathione catalase and superoxide dismutase these are like three of the most important antioxidants in your body yeah and so every time you smoke you're increasing this detoxification you're increasing your immune function and you're, you're basically increasing every single function in your body by raising these antioxidants and this this would make a lot of sense and this would explain partly as to why smoking does manage to prevent lung cancer, how it protects against um, when you inhale radiation, how it protects against asbestos, exhaust fumes and all of these different other things. Because this antioxidant activity basically protects the lung tissue. You know, it stops things from getting through the, the epithelial lining in the tissue and it allows you to, to basically detoxify everything else. Um, it also explains why physicians in the 19th century used tobacco to treat asthma, why tribal yeah. shamans used tobacco for respiratory disorders. Exactly. And now it also explains, it also explains why people are so yeah. nuts to get people to stop smoking. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also explains, Elliot, I mean, you went into uh, some some just anecdotal examples of some people, some of the longest lived people in the world are smokers. 
who like smoke, yeah. you know, and not even just a little bit. They tend to be excessive smokers. Like all these people who are yeah. living to like 115, 116 years old. Like so often oh. there are these people who are smoking like a pack a day. Yeah, I mean, honestly, from what I could find, the majority of the longest people who have ever lived on this planet have all been smokers. Okay, there's mm. a few, the few exceptions. But the majority of them have smoked since they were like 16 years old and they've smoked like 40 a day. <laughs> and, you know, to many people, this doesn't make sense. But it, if you understand the effects that it has on your epigenetic expression, then it does make sense. Like, for instance, um, I came across this gem of information that, I, you know, wasn't really explicated anywhere else on the Internet. And it, it just makes so much sense as to how smokers can literally live for so long. Um, you've got a, a, a gene that's called it's called SIRT1. OK, mm -hmm. so it, it's, it's basically a search you in. What happens in your body is when when your proteins um when they're subject to certain stresses okay when when you get stressed or when you know you're trying to fight something off and your proteins get stressed what happens is is they go through something called acetylation which means that there's a, a specific group called an acetyl body that's added to the protein and this means the pro the protein can't function as efficiently as it would and it dies a lot earlier so basically what what cert one does is it deacetylates your proteins it basically takes that acetyl group it, it, um in a simplified way it basically regenerates your proteins so what it means is you don't have to spend your energy recycling and making new proteins what you can actually spend your energy on is your immune function and everything else so you've got hmm. this, this this gene here called cert one now Basically, it's been consistently shown, yeah, in smokers. Smokers have um, significantly raised levels of CERT1, okay? CERT1 is a gene that codes for a protein, and it was studied in smokers that this protein was a lot higher in smokers than it was in non-smokers. Now, what this means for mitochondrial function, I'm not going to go too much into it. The article does go into it, into some depth, but it is quite it's quite complex to explain. Basically, a higher level of sirtuin one means by default that you have a higher level of NAD plus. Now, a high level of NAD plus means by default that you have a very good mitochondrial function. Okay, now your mitochondria is basically the powerhouse of your cell. It generates all of the energy and you need it to live. If you don't have good mitochondrial function, you don't have energy to do anything in your body. So basically bad mitochondrial function means death. Okay, so raised CERT1 levels by default means that you've got an extremely good mitochondrial function. Now, CERT1 has also been linked to, um, you know, um, it basically controls epigenetic expression, it controls metabolism, and it's been linked with longevity. You know, it increases T3 hormone sensitivity, increases leptin sensitivity, increases the skin sensitivity to vitamin D. It inhibits and switches off genes associated with inflammation. It, it regulates your blood sugar and it also regulates your body fat accumulation. So basically, 
you know, you don't really have to understand the science behind this. All you have to know is that Cert 1 is very good. And the fact that smokers have got very high levels of Cert 1 when compared to non-smokers is a good indicator that (laughs) smoking is very beneficial to the health. And it clearly explains as to why people who smoke for all of their lives, if they are genetically compatible then it isn't gonna it is gonna basically increase their lifespan by a very long time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Jeez. Cheers for that. <laughs> I think interesting too with the uh with the long lived smokers that as far as I could tell from the examples that I've seen online, um, that they're from areas of the world that would have a significant uh lack of uh, environmental pollution. Mm. And they they most likely also have uh, have lived off of a uh, a majority natural diet, not eating processed foods. Yeah. Because they're usually from like uh, like uh, Italy, right? Um, some parts of Europe, uh, Asia, South America, uh, Japan, in more uh, rural cultures. So I just thought that that was interesting because you know. Like we were talking about earlier, the correlations in these studies between uh, cancer and other, uh, you know, life-threatening diseases that that there's they're leaving out the correlations between these things and these these factors like diet and environmental pollution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in- interestingly enough, as well, is that you know we we would imagine that organic tobacco. Um, with all of the chemicals that are supposedly added to tobacco smoke, we would imagine that organic to- tobacco had a, you know, was was a lot more healthy. But in 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 most of these studies, um, the the studies were actually done on people who were smoking normal cigarettes. You know, mm-hmm. so so we we often sort of, or I find myself, you know, I've often you know, gone with the idea that, ah, well, you know, like I smoke organic tobacco and that's okay, but I I wouldn't want to smoke the ordinary tobacco. But to be honest, from looking at all of the research, I would say to someone, if they can't source um, organic tobacco, just smoke normal cigarettes because, Mm. you know, all of these studies have have clearly shown that normal cigarettes have this exact same effect. Um, Mm. And the fact that... Increase your detoxification by so much. I would imagine that you can basically detoxify anything, any any of the bad chemicals that you're smoking in the cigarettes. You know what I yeah. mean? I think that would come down to uh, essentially, because uh, that's kind of a sacred cow for me too. I find myself getting snobby once in a while about like, well, my tobacco's from a farm, you know. Um, <laughs> and I should check my attitude on that, but uh, the uh, the the differences, I think. Um, mainly in, in taste for me uh, and in taste, smell, and aftertaste. And I don't know, you know, if any of our listeners have smoked, or, you know, natural organic tobacco and then gone back and smoked, say, like a Marlboro or a Camel, um, you really notice the difference in the, in the flavor. And um, so I, I have to imagine, I guess, I don't know, it still makes sense to me that there's some difference, but it's very interesting and compelling that, as you said, these studies are done on people who are just smoking regular commercial cigarettes. And I, I'd be very curious to see a study done on natural organic tobacco, but I don't know, you know, who, who could actually get funding for that study. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. that could be possible. <laughs> these days. 
I was speculating that all these scientists behind these research, they're smoke. They are all smoke. They are all smoking <laughs> secretly. <laughs> secretly, with the hamsters, they go for a smoke. With their hamsters, they're smoking hamsters. I we mean, did have a. Uh, we had a listener in the chat here a little while back that asked about snooze. Um, oh yes. Which you know, if you're not familiar, snooze is essentially like chewing tobacco in a little pouch that you uh, that you hold uh, in your in your mouth. Um, and if there were any benefits to that, and I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, for a fact, but I mean, obviously if you're not inhaling the smoke, you're not getting the protective mucus layer in your lungs. Uh, you're not absorbing things in a, in a, in a different way. Um, but you would still be getting the nicotine from the snooze. Yeah. I remember reading something about it. It's just like smoking is just the best delivery for for mm-hmm. nicotine and all the good products, you know, it's just so fast, you know, it just like goes mm-hmm. straight to your brain, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, like the 10 pro- times more is fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the propaganda around this is, is totally fascinating to me because I'm about as pro tobacco as you can get. And yet, mm-hmm. even as we're talking about this, there's this little voice in my head like, <laughs> that, can't be, that can't be true, you know. That's not <laughs> Smoking is bad. It's the programming. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, it's you know, it, it's, it's worth it's sorry, it's it's worth mentioning that a lot of the stuff that we've actually been told about tobacco is simply not true. Like, um, you know, there's this myth that there's somehow four thousand chemicals that are added to normal tobacco. That's just simply not true. You know, if you look at the data, um, it was actually that that was that was a comment that was that was misinterpreted um, by the newspapers and the, you know, the publicists and basically what where it stems from is is people basically um the the researchers basically said okay when tobacco smoke burns it could potentially release up to four thousand chemicals but what this was interpreted as was okay they add four thousand chemicals to it therefore it must be really really bad and the problem is, is that when you actually look at lo- uh, uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the chemicals that are added, there's really not all that much, you know. Like they they talk about um, formaldehyde, but formaldehyde is actually um, I think G- Gordon spoke about this in in his article. Formaldehyde is a naturally occurring substance that you find in in many different foods, and it's naturally metabolized by the body anyway. Um, you know. Uh, most of the chemicals that they actually add to it, you'll find are essential oils. <laughs> they add things like lavender. They add mm. things like citronella. They, that, that's how cigarettes taste differently to other cigarettes. It's because they use natural flavorings like vanilla <laughs> and, you know, like lemongrass and all of these different sort of, um, you know, essential oil fra- flavorings that really aren't all that bad. Um, there's this common idea that, you know, smoking, um, there's carbon monoxide in smoke and therefore it must co- cause cancer. But this is this is a, a completely faulty assumption. Um, for what it's worth, there's a small amount of carbon, di- carbon monoxide in smoke. But what people don't actually understand is that carbon monoxide is hormetic, which means that when you have it in a small dose, it actually has a very benef- beneficial effect on your body. It's the dose mm. is the poison. If you know, if you stick your head in front of a, a car exhaust, yeah, you're going to get die. carbon monoxide poisoning. 
But when you have a small amount, I mean, there's actually um, there's you know there's a few researchers who are specialising in carbon carbon monoxide as a treatment modality modality. Okay, so what they're doing is they're administering small doses of carbon monoxide, and get this, they're doing it to treat lung injuries, heart, hepatic, and renal injuries, as well as hmm. inflammation and arthritis, and they're getting some amazing results. Okay, and this is carbon monoxide at a very low level. Now, if you think mm. every time you smoke a cigarette, you're getting a very low dose of carbon carbon monoxide, it acts as a hormetic agent, which means it, it actually has a beneficial effect on your body's um, ability to repair itself. You know, so a lot of these assumptions about smoking are, you know, twisted upside down and mm. There, there is simply too much evidence to state, and the, sci- the science is really quite concrete behind this, in that tobacco is essentially a medicine. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a medicine. It's interesting, <laughs> it's interesting to too, because a lot of the things that people will, like, you know, that's taken for granted that's a medicine, also only works via hormetic effect. So things like uh, curcumin that you find in, um, in turmeric, is also hormetic. You know, you're taking that dose, that small dose of something that's actually toxic to the body. But by taking it in in small doses, your 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 body kind of mobilizes its defenses against it and has a beneficial effect. So yeah, it's just you know people will accept that that's a medicine, but they won't accept that tobacco is. Yeah, exactly. The, the only thing I would, uh, I guess, that I would uh, still argue about the difference between kind of rolling your own. Or smoking commercial cigarettes is the uh, the glue and the contents of the papers and the filters themselves um, is something that I've wondered about for some time, which is why I kind of ended up rolling my own um, because I you know there there are a lot of different uh, components in the glue that are in the papers that you can avoid by using natural papers with a natural gum like a guar gum or something like that um, and the uh, the accelerants and decelerants. Uh, and this, I think, is just a visual experiment that you can do if you light, say, a Marlboro and set it in the ashtray. It's going to burn all the way down to the filter without any provocation. But if you have a roll of your own and you light it and you set it down, it's going to go out. Um, so I, I have to imagine that there's something different there that's creating that uh, accelerant effect, you know, that's regulating the burning of the cigarette. So it, I, I guess I'm just saying in my mind there are still some reasons to go with um, roll your own tobacco. But I... I Again, I find it very interesting, you know, what you're saying that the uh, that commercial cigs are what's actually used in these in these studies. Um, there was an interesting bit. I, I wish I, I tried to find it for the show, but I couldn't find it, and uh, it's bumming me out. I w- someday I'll I'll be able to track this back down. But it was an article that I had read years ago that talked about um, filter versus non-filtered cigarettes, and that when you smoke filtered tobacco it actually allows the smoke to penetrate more deeply into your lung tissue um, mm. because it's more fine. Um, but when you're smoking unfiltered cigarettes, it, you inhale at a, a more superficial level. And so it doesn't penetrate all the way to the very bottom of like the lung buds. Um, and so then it might, so there's some sort of anecdotal evidence there that, uh, that unfiltered tobacco may actually be better than filtered tobacco. But again, mm. I think that comes a preference for taste and, and texture, all those kind of things. 
Yeah. So this sounds like the just, key is just, to just smoke to... what you like and enjoy it and not feel guilty about it. <laughs> and know that with yeah. the inhale, yeah. you are benefiting your body. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, but one it's so the... hard for... Oh, go ahead, Elliot, please. I was just going to say one other really interesting, oh, really important thing to mention, um, and I think a lot of smokers are sort of subject to this, is that smoking supposedly causes black lungs, um, and that mm. is just an outright lie. You know, that, that doesn't occur. There has to be the presence of something called elemental carbon. Elemental carbon, when it's breathed in, it deposits in the lungs, and it's very hard for your body to get rid of it, Okay. There is no elemental carbon in tobacco smoke. Okay, so it is physically mm. impossible for someone's smoke to turn, for someone's lung to turn black when they smoke. The only time you'll find a black lung is when you have someone who has got lung cancer, and that's not because of anything particular in the lungs that has made it black. It's because you have something called tissue necrosis. Now, what mm. that means is. The cells die in your lungs. That's basically what the cancer is. It's, it's an overgrowth and it causes like, um, you know, it basically causes your lungs to die. And that's why they go black. Um, there is there's no evidence that I mean, there's there's actually many people in, in the health community, in, in the research fields that actually, you know, have, have outright said there is no evidence that smoking causes black lungs. And, you know, surgeons, um, when they actually operate, yeah. You know, 50 percent of the lungs that they use are of smokers and there is no way that, you, that they can determine whether whether someone is a smoker or not even on that autopsy. is very true that is very true when i used to be a heart surgeon yeah i was like never saw any correlation of any type you know it was just pink lungs black lungs but it would not correlate between smokers and smokers it's just like a myth yeah mm-hmm. Yet that doesn't stop them from putting the image on the uh, the cigarette packs of the black lung. I guess this comes back to the placebo effect, though, doesn't it? Because when you every time you go to the shop to buy a cigarette and you see a picture of a black lung, you know you're you're telling yourself, you know, oh my god, this is my lungs. You probably have mm. the potential to turn your lungs black. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Just by that thought alone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I get um, what, while we have a little bit of time left here, there's there's another question uh, in our chat that was about uh, pesticides on tobacco, and I thought there was a good response from another chatter that said, you know, as with anything, the cleaner the better, and uh, I guess that's kind of my own viewpoint on that too. Like, you know, if you're going to put something in your body, do your best to vet where it comes from and and find the cleanest that you can. Um, you know, I think that's just a good philosophy across the board. So, you know, I don't know if there's a way to, you know, uh, actually source. Like, you would have to know the farm that it was coming from and call them and say, what pesticides do you use and that kind of thing. You know, these are not included in in actual statistics about cigarettes that you're buying or, or tobacco that you're buying, for that matter, unless it's certified organic. Isn't tobacco a natural pesticide in and of itself? Don't they grow tobacco or it put is. tobacco onto other crops to, to act as a pesticide? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so I'm not really aware of the uh, the pesticide usage on tobacco crops. I don't really know. 
Mm. Yeah, nicotine is like the the tobacco plant's natural mechanism of preventing pests pests um, from eating it. So it is a natural pesticide anyway. Mm. Um, I, I you know, I, I'd agree. If someone can source organic tobacco, then of course go for the organic variety. One, it tastes better. Two, it smokes better. And three, it's probably a lot more healthy. Um, but for those people who, for whatever reason, can't source organic tobacco, just, mm-hmm. you know, smoking anything is better than smoking nothing. Um, and I think <laughs> research has clearly shown that. Mm-hmm. Well, now that all of our sacred cows are dead. In the- <laughs> 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 um it's been a really great show. I think that, uh, you know, we, we've gone a little bit over our time. Uh, I think it'd be a good time for us to go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment, and then um, we can wrap up uh, after we come back from that. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya. And today I would like to talk to you about dog behavior. The idea for this segment came from one particular lecture I had today, and also after hearing about recent scandal that involved Caesar Milan. Apparently more and more people disagree with his dominance theory, and so I decided to shed some light on alternative views regarding the issue of dog behavior and interactions. So... In the past, much of the behavior of dogs was interpreted quite simplistically in terms of hierarchy or social structure. It was believed that dogs were motivated uh, to achieve a higher status relative to other dogs or people, and that this desire led them to show behaviors such as aggression in order to achieve control. Lots of uh, eminent behaviorists and trainers used to think this way. But with the advancement of science and clinical behavior practice, we now know that the foundations on which this theory was based are fundamentally flawed. And the majority of trainers and behaviorists have changed their practice as a result. We also have a much better understanding of how the brain works and how animals learn which has enabled us to develop a better understanding of why behaviors uh, such as aggression do develop in dogs. So where did this uh, dominance theory came from? Early studies of captive uh, unrelated wolves suggested a rigid social structure of hierarchy maintained by aggression. The findings of this research were applied to interactions between dogs because the wolf was the ancestor of the dog. The theory was assumed to apply in relationships between dogs and people, and that dogs perceived the relationship with the owner in terms of of relative status. So what were the problems with this theory? More recent uh, research on wolves has found that the natural social groupings of wolves is actually based on cooperative family groups of parents and offspring with very little aggression. Dogs have changed a lot since domestication and groups of feral dogs do not have the same social structure as wolves. 
Studies of interactions between dogs show no evidence of fixed hierarchical relationships, but rather relationships between individuals which are based on learning. In fact, apparently dogs would rather act diplomatically and try to avoid conflict as much as possible, instead of instigating it. Dogs are naturally born lavrovs rather than breedlovs. So if this theory is wrong, what theory has more basis in reality? There also seems to be a plethora of examples of multi-dog households in which one dog is more equal than others. The resource may vary from access to the human to access to the great outdoors to access to the pig's ears or some other tasty stuff. But there are myriad examples of groups of dogs in which one dog appears uh, to have priority access to what it wants. But of course, there are complications. The concept of priority access is often um, confounded by a lack of understanding of what it means. It is often said that possessions, uh, possession is the law in wolf society, and it can be often found in dogs too. If a dog who normally behaves submissively um, has a hold on a bone, a dog who would be called dominant by many does not have priority access. Often he who has the bone gets the bone. Dominance was originally uh, used to describe two individuals who do not have possession of a resource. Given that scenar scenario, when two individuals do not have possession of something yet, who gets it? In fact, there are e enough examples um, uh, from interactions between dogs that show that uh, they so-called dominance by... Um, they take turns uh, in dominance. They are dominant by turns. That one time one dog gets the bone and is being dominant, and some other time another dog can get the bone and be dominant. In biology, the word resource can refer to a wide range of things. Uh, for example, common zebra males compete uh, for females as the limited factor in passing on their genes. Uh, gravest zebra males uh, compete for good water holes, an indirect way of competing for females who are attracted to the resources necessary to provide for the young. Uh, cavity nesting birds compete for territories with all the dead trees that can provide good nest uh, sites, etc., etc. Dogs can compete for a favorable uh, toy or access to outside or sitting next to their favorite human. Beside an interest and status, uh, the personality, uh, that is temperament plus life experience of each dog, surely makes a huge difference in their behavior around other dogs. There are dogs out there who are so-called alpha wannabes, status-seeking, controlling but insecure and nervous. They turn into the bullies of the world, the canine equivalent of a boss from hell who wants to control all the resources, but doesn't have the chops to do much of anything with confidence. Other dogs are what some people call natural alphas. They never get into fight, uh, not even a skirmish, not once. They are the ones who probably read the doggy version of how to make friends and influence canines. In reality, there is no such thing as a dominant personality. 
Dominance is a relationship between individuals, not a description of a temperament. However, that one uh, component of personality in dogs is whether or not they are status-seeking. This is true in our society as well, just like in dog society. The actress gets the best table at the restaurant because she's famous and fame in our culture gives one social status. Status simply means uh, one's position relative to that of others, and surely it is obvious measure of human interactions. And it seems that some dogs care about status more than others. Uh, but some dogs just don't seem to care about social status either. Uh, social status is just one way to get what you want. Uh, there is one other phrase used by a wolf ethologist named Zeman. Dominance simply means whoever has the most social freedom. Is that the same as priority access to a preferred resource? resource? Uh, maybe. The bottom line is that the concept of dominance in dogs may be relevant, maybe, but only if it is understood that it is merely a way of describing one aspect of the relationship between social individuals, but not as something that should define a relationship between canines or canines and their human companions. Well, this is it for today. Perhaps in the future I'll talk more about this topic, but for now it is just food for thought. Thank you for listening and have a nice weekend and goodbye. All right, thank you very much, Soya. That was a great one. We, uh, we, we've gone uh, a little bit over our time. Uh, we're trying to keep the show to around an hour and a half, but today's topic was so dense, and of course we still didn't cover everything. Um, uh, I don't have a recipe for today just because I wanted to give more time to, to talk about the topic, but uh, uh, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and for our chat uh, participants uh, taking part in the chat there. And uh, especially to uh, Gordon for joining us, uh, especially uh, given the fact that in his time zone, it was very, very late. Uh, so we really mm -hmm. appreciate him coming on and, and staying up and taking the time to do that um, and for writing that article. Gordon's article on SOT is, uh, let's see, I'm just pulling up the, the epidemic of junk science in tobacco smoking research, if you want to look that up. And the article that Elliot has been working on, which is not published yet, but will be soon, uh, tentatively called A Comprehensive Review of the Many Health Benefits of Smoking Tobacco. So keep an eye out for that article uh, when it comes up on site. I think that uh, you will all be very interested to read through that and see the, the research laid out um, and then be able to check the sources yourself. It's replete with sources. Uh, so there's a lot of research that can be done there. Um, so uh, thanks again, and um, be sure to check out the other two uh, shows on the SOT Radio Network, The Truth Perspective, uh, tomorrow and uh, Behind the Headlines on Sunday. And if you visit radio.sot.net, you can see the times there. No matter what your time zone is, it will show you the correct air times. Um, and 
we will be back uh, next Friday. So uh, thanks to everybody who took part today. Um, and we'll see you in a week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.